You only need to go as far as the nearest Starbucks to discover that most people have discarded ritual like a used coffee cup. Just ask around, and the people will tell you, oh, I don't believe in organized religion and all that ritual stuff, but I like to think of myself as spiritual. People are grabbing personal spirituality while relegating ritual and organized religion to the status of stodgy old relatives fit only to be politely ignored. Ironically, just about everyone in that Starbucks would admit to craving some kind of a deep encounter with the transcendent, a greater experience of the force, or even, even with God. Some would speak of long-ago relatives and friends whose spirituality they envy. And many will leave that Starbucks to go somewhere to practice various forms of martial arts or meditative disciplines at centers promising enhanced spirituality at a reduced price this week only. Others will make their way to the nearest bookstore to thumb through the latest book offering hitherto undiscovered keys of making the universe fulfill one's deepest desires. If conditions were right, they will admit to being spiritually thirsty. In our day, such people try to find some sort of personalized half-calf mocha fudge latte spirituality with whipped cream and a spritz of maple syrup to help get them through the long dark night of the soul. But truly, the solution to their dilemma and the answer to their thirst lies elsewhere. They're going to have to retrieve that discarded cup, the cup of ritual, specifically, as we'll see, household ritual. I would insist that the pathway, pathway to spiritual revitalization and deeper encounter with the transcendent realm for everyone at that Starbucks, and particularly for the Jews there, because they're the people I understand best, that their revitalization begins with retrieving the discarded cup of ritual. It is from this cup that life-giving water should be drunk, bringing renewal with which the merchandises of popular spirituality cannot begin to compete. I will speak here especially of the Jewish context and of the households of Jews like myself who believe in Yeshua the Messiah and who are determined to preserve Jewish continuity because that's one of the things I represent. and That's what I've been doing for many years. I will argue that reclaiming household ritual can and should enrich the spirituality and relationships within the household and beyond, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Specifically, we need and must enhance our sense of the presence of God in our homes through ritual. As a case in point, I'm going to be talking about Shabbat. But let's start further back. Let's start for a moment with the centrality of the home in the Bible and in Jewish life. In the Garden of Eden, 
the perfection that God describes is this. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God is the creator of family. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, as you know, and he closed up the flesh of that place, as you know. And the Lord uh, fashioned into, the, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought it to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is to be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So God created community in the perfect place amongst the first people. But that's not all. And we must never leave it at that. Especially if we're learning about practice for ourselves now, because the next chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And since they had already eaten of the tree from which God told them not to eat, the man and his wife hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What sin interrupted and disrupted was man's relationship with his wife, because you see that the relationship with the wife becomes uh, uh, complicated. And she's told that she's going to bear children in great pain and sorrow. The relationship with her, their children becomes complicated. And the relationship of the brothers, Cain and Abel, as well as the, bal- uh, the, uh, the balance of nature gets complicated. In the Bible, by the way, the sibling relationship is the strongest relationship. It is those who are children of the same father who are expected to show the strongest loyalty to each other, even above the loyalty they owe to their spouses. That's, that's, that is the spine of family loyalty. These relationships are the anchor, the relationship with the father and the relationship of siblings with the same father. This is why Cain's sin against Abel is so horrendous. And when he says to God, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, that is unthinkable. Of course you're your brother's keeper. Your brother is more important to you than anybody else you know. Should be. And that's why the animosities between Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael and Joseph's brothers with him, all children of the same father, even though different mothers, From the biblical point of view, these people owe each other unbreakable loyalty. And that's why the stories are, uh, for the ancient world, the stories made jaws drop open. Because they were so horrendous. And of course, if you haven't guessed it, the ultimate father, from whom we are all descended, and whom we must honor in how we treat each other, the ultimate father is God. And God makes us all to be siblings. And we owe each other loyalty. 
Spirituality is not an organizational matter. It's not a program. It's not a curriculum. It's intensely relational, and spirituality is a family affair. And again, this sense of, of everyone being in the homestead, loving each other and honoring God, is the ideal the Bible presents to us from cover to cover. Everybody being at home as family, loving each other and loving God. That is paradise. And that is what we're supposed to be working from and working towards. For this reason, I find it extremely interesting that Jesus promises this. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Even in the eternal, eternal state, perfection involves people living together in right relationship in dwelling places. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't say, I go and prepare a cloud for you. I go and prepare a harp for you. I go and prepare a great Baptist service for you. I go and prepare a place for you. In the old translations of my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, what I have told you, I, w- I would have told you. So this priority of a dwelling place where we live with God is to be found literally from Genesis to Revelation. This is where everything finishes at the end. Notice this. Gen- this is Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Interesting. N.T. Wright reminds us in a great book called Surprised by Hope. You have to read that book, Surprised by Hope. That our goal is not to all go up to heaven. The goal is that heaven comes down to earth. The New Jerusalem comes down and heavenizes earth. What we await is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're going to exist forever in bodies. We're not going to be floating on clouds. We're not going to see cash for the friendly ghost. We're going to have resurrected bodies, perfected bodies. We'll be living in community. We'll be living as people, as immortal people, as deathless people. We'll be people just like Jesus Christ was when he came back from the dead. He said, see, flesh and bones doesn't have, is not like what you see here. Put your hand in my, in my, in my, in the holes in my hands, in my side. See, it's me. And you will eternally be you in resurrected bodies. And we will live in community. And so this passage in Revelation continues to say this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, this is the goal. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. This is God's dream. I sometimes teach people, what's the Bible all about? One of the ways I teach them is I teach them about God's dream. This is God's dream. From, Gen- from Eden to eternity, this is God's dream. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. Actually, the Greek says, they will be his laoi, his peoples. We don't all become homogenized into one people. 
we remain Mexicans and Swedes and Danes and Jews and Heinz 57 varieties. Whatever we are, we remain that. Jesus is still the lion of the tribe of Judah. He hasn't become, you know, I like, I like to tell the church that the savior of the church is a circumcised Jew. And he still is. That's very frankly said, but it's true. So just as in the Indianic beginning, so at the end, God will dwell in the midst of humankind. This expectation appears throughout the Bible, perhaps best expressed in Ezekiel 37, 37. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's God's dream. So, as we'll be seeing, in our dwelling places, God wants to dwell in the midst of our homes. God wants to dwell in the midst of our homes, in the midst of our families, in the midst of our community life at home. It's meant to be a microcosm of what I'm telling you about. One thing we must never do is take God for granted. Say, of course God's there, we all know that. For that reason, we need to and we must enhance our sense of who God is and of our relationship with Him. And how do we enhance and deepen our sense of who God is and our relationship with Him? Ritual. Ritual does that. It elevates awareness. It's great stuff. Can it be abused? Absolutely. Anything done mindlessly, even sex done mindlessly, is, is bad. We must never be satisfied to simply just assume he is there. We must grow in the knowledge of him. And through ritual, we must elevate our awareness of him, of his mighty works, of our obligations to him. And we must structure our relationship to time, to others, and to the created order through the glories of ritual. Our homes are not just homes. In Jewish terms, each home is a mikdash ma'at. Mikdash ma'at. Mikdash ma'at means a little sanctuary where we meet with God. Isn't that great? Your home is a mikdash ma'at. The temple was called the Beit HaMikdash, the house of mikdash. Your, your homes, in a sense, are little temples. And actually, your home is the Holy of Holies from which the rest of life is enriched. He is our God. We are his priests. The dinner table is the altar. And the purpose of life is to learn and to practice what it means to honor him. And the dwelling place is where it all happens. Always in the Bible, for the Jewish people, not only in the beginning and not only at the end, but also in the middle of everything, the dwelling place is the locus of encounter with the God whom we honor. So we read in Genesis 25, verse 8, God tells the people... Uh, about the tabernacle. He says, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see how that all fits in with everything we're saying? That's God's desire. He wants to hang out with us. He wants to dwell in the midst of us. He wants to be honored in the midst of our, of our, of our on-the-ground realities. Earlier, in the song at the Red Sea, the people are spoken of as those whom God has purchased, whom he will bring in and plant on his holy mountain. And this is talking about the deliverance through the Red Sea. And he says, you're going to bring us to the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. This is uh, not just the temple, the tabernacle, the mishkan, the tent, but it's talking about the temple, the Beit HaMikdash. 
First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he contemplates this theological conundrum. Where exactly is God's dwelling place? After all, the prophets also, especially Isaiah and Zechariah and Ezekiel, and the New Testament writers, and the Jewish tradition have long grappled with the question of where is God? Where does he live? Does God dwell in the temple? Yes. Does he not dwell in the universe, which he has created by his will? Yes. Is he not greater than the universe and all the created order? Yes, again. In the New Testament, we ask and answer with affir- affirmatively that God dwelt in the Messiah. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. But was he confined to Christ? No. It's both and. It's both and. God is in the body of believers. He's in each one of us. But is he, is he confined to that? No, he's not. But he is truly present. And we have to remember that. God dwelling amongst his people foreshadows for us the genius of Jewish life and the thrust of this address. With both the tabernacles and the temples gone, Judaism sees the home as the dwelling place of God, where God is honored and lives. And lives that honor him are shaped and nurtured at home. Jewish religious discord terms the home the Mikdash Ma'at, the holy sanctuary, the little sanctuary. This is the center. This is the microcosm from which blessing flows to the macrocosm of life. The home, as I said before, is the Holy of Holies, where God dwells and we serve him as priests. It's not, the home is not simply a place of instruction. It's not simply a place of indoctrination. It is meant to be a place of divine human encounter. It's meant to be a place of worship. Just as the tabernacle and the temples were dwelling places for God to be among his people, so with our homes. And all we say, and all we do, we are to welcome, we are to seek, we are to honor and cultivate the presence of God. It's hot stuff. It can change your life. That's what I hope to do. Without the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the temple was just a building. Without the presence of God in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was just a tent. And for the people of God, the house is not just a building. It's not just meant to be a home. It is meant to be a temple where God is honored and where we learn how to behave in his presence. How is this done? In Jewish life, this means ritual. The roots of ritual take us from time to time, from place to place, from relationship to relationship, from context to context. And it would if we would understand Jewish ritual life, these considerations must be borne in mind. How do you behave in this situation, that situation, this place, that place? How do you behave with this person as opposed to that person? You behave differently with your wife than you do with other women. You behave differently with older people than you do with younger people. This, this is really what it's all about. This is, it's what I call the distribution of kavod. I'm going to teach you, I've taught you two Hebrew words, mikdash, ma'at, here's one more. Kavod. Would you say kavod? Kavod. Kavod, uh, it means, uh, it comes from a, a root that connotes the idea of weight. So it means treating God first and then everything else with appropriate weight. Another term we would use is honor. So the Bible says that you should rise before the aged man and you shall fear the Lord your God. That showing proper kavod to older people 
is a matter of fearing God. And uh, the Bible tells us, husbands, uh, honor your wives, treat your wives with honor, or lest your prayers be hindered. It can be a spiritual problem. If you don't show proper kavod to your wife, gentlemen, then you're messing up your relationship with God because God cares about kavod. We're going to look at more of that. Let's go to the Shema, the quintessential, the quintessential Jewish faith declaration. We read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you notice where we start, when you sit in your house. Then when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them for a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your gates. To your children, a question of to whom. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, a question of where. When you lie down and when you rise up, a question of when. And when we write these commands on the doorposts of our house and on our gates, it's a reminder that the home base is the center of our life with God. This ties in with the biblical metaphor of, that I love the way Psalm, one of the Psalms says it, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Where do we go out from? Where do we come back to? What does the Bible treat as home base for spirituality? It's clear. It's the home. It's in the home, the little sanctuary, the, the Holy of Holies, where we learn and practice what it means to live with God, to show honor to Him, and to show proper respect for each other. Because it's on that basis that our relationships with, with everything else is determined. Let's talk. I'll have it later in my notes, but I'll jump ahead and I'll say, what about honor your father and mother, which is the, the, uh, the, the first commandment with a promise, that your days may be lengthened on the earth. Why is it important to honor one's father and mother? Because people who cannot honor their father and mother, uh, you don't want to have a relationship with them anywhere else. Because that's where it all starts. And it's interesting that Malachi, and this is also in my notes, but I'll jump ahead. In the book of Malachi, when it talks about that time when the, uh, prophet, the Elijah prophet is going to come as a forerunner of the Messiah, it says, what is he going to do? He's going to come and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers, lest I strike the land with a curse. Obviously, from the Bible's point of view, when the proper respect and kavod between fathers and children and children and parents disappears, it's time for judgment. It's really, it's, it's, it's a very bad sign. It's a sign that everything has fallen apart. And this is why the home, this is another reason why the home must be the center it's not simply because we need a place and pragmatically we already have a house, so let's use the house. No, no, no. The home is where family happens and spirituality is a family affair. Okay. I've got more here about Kavod, but I've already told you, so just hold on a minute. 
One might consider all of Jewish ritual as a modality for the distribution of proper honor, treating God, people, things with proper weight, taking into account diversities of identity, relationship, and context. Indeed, it's as we give proper weight to the relationships and events of our lives that we best give honor and kavod to God, acknowledging the supreme weightiness of his being. Especially the, dis the distribution of kavod begins with family members, as I said. The Bible talks about honor your father and mother. It says, husbands, honor your wives. It says in, it says in, in Ephesians, and wives, see that you, you remember the next word? Respect. Wives, see that you respect your husbands. That is kavod. It's fathers and, and, son, and children having kavod for one another, a proper kavod. Husbands and wives, going both ways. So, Luke's gospel makes the kavod connection unambiguous. Speaking of John the Baptist, he will turn the he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make the people, uh, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, the foundation for all of this is laid in the home, and I want to give you an example, but I want to talk to you briefly about Shabbat, about what happens with Shabbat in a Jewish home, and how Shabbat is just one of those rituals which you can see as teaching us about kavod, about showing God proper honor, about showing each other proper honor. Religious Jews will do their shopping for Shabbat earlier in the week, uh, usually finishing by Thursday, shopping for the finest foods of the week. Why? This is because Shabbat is likened to a queen whom we receive into our homes, just as one would receive a queen by offering the best food that one has. So we honor Shabbat with the kinds of foods we eat, how they're prepared, what kind of plates we use, the settings, everything is top of the line. Uh, because we're learning to honor Shabbat, which we call a queen, because Shabbat is a gift from God to the Jewish people. Even the way per permitted animals are, are killed is prescribed by our tradition. As you know, animals must be healthy and not specifically forbidden, such as pork. When the animal is killed, it must be killed with a sharp blade without any nicks on it and in one smooth stroke. This is a concern for the well-being of animals. It's a matter of kavod. It's called kavod habriot, showing kavod for living things. You show kavod even for the animals you eat and how you kill them because it's not kosher otherwise. That God does not accept it because he's very concerned to teach us about honor and respect for him, for each other, for everything else. I'll skip that. Another uh, issue is how we prepare the homes. The home is especially clean prior to Shabbat. This again is in preparation for receiving the Shabbat queen. So let's assume that the family is going to synagogue on Friday night, which when people lived near the synagogue, was something that often happened. Let's assume they've been to synagogue, now they come back. What happens at the table? I call this God's 12-step plan for Jews. Uh, uh, it's a 12-step plan. There are 12 steps in the way Shabbat is kept. And I'm not going to give you all the details because we'll be here until next Shabbat. But uh, let me give you a little lesson. 
First, we light the candles. It's customary to light two candles, although some families will light one candle for each member of the family. It's also customary for the woman to light the candles. And she says, Baruch atah Adonai, Elohim HaMelech HaOlam, Asher Kitshan B'mitzvotav, V'tivan Olahadlik Ne'er Shel Shabbat. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the Universe, King of the Universe, who has set us apart by your commandments, commanded us to light the candles. After she said this, with her eyes covered, it's customary for her to pray for her family. Two candles are customary, corresponding to two verbs used about Shabbat. In the two versions of the Ten Commandments, one version in Deuteronomy and one in Exodus, one says that we're to observe uh, Shabbat, and the other one says we're to, we're, to, uh, to, we're, we're to remember the Shabbat, and the other one says we're to guard it or to keep it. So we use those two verbs, zachor and shamor, to remember and to guard. So the two candles remind us we're supposed to remember Shabbat and we're supposed to guard it, protect it. Step two, we bless the children. The children get proper respect. We bless our sons. We say, Yisimcha Elohim Ephraim Menasseh. May God bless you like he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. Then we bless our daughters. We say, may God make you like Sarah and Rivka, Rachel and Leah. And, uh, and uh, although traditionally it was the father who blesses the children in our egalitarian days, it, it's, in, it's not at all uncommon that it's both parents who do so. Then we say the ironic benediction over the children. May the Lord bless you and keep you, which you're well familiar with. Then, then the, uh, the father says a blessing for the wife. Uh, he says he reads uh, Proverbs thirty-one. Eshet Chayel, uh, a, a, a woman of valor who can find. And, and we, I, I sing to my wife. I sing a Proverbs thirty-one to her every week. Then I give it to her in English. We sing a song. So that's that. That step two is showing proper regard to the family members. And it's a egalitarian age too, by the way. Uh, some people read Psalm one hundred and twelve, which talks about the righteous man, the virtuous man. So the wife, in reciprocation to her husband, having given thanks for her being a virtuous woman, she will then read about what a great man he is. And just think how important it is to the children to see the parents honoring each other every week, to see themselves honored, to see the, see the parents honoring each other. This is family spirituality. This is the foundation for everything else. Step three, we sing a song called Shalom Aleichem. Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Hasharet, Malachi Elyon. It's a song where traditionally um, the, 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 a legend says that when you come back from uh, synagogue, two angels come with you. And, uh, and this is a song where we, we welcome the angels to our table. Uh, now, you may find that to be bad doctrine. Singing just as I am every service is also human tradition. So let's move on. Uh, step five, we, we say Kiddush. We bless a cup of wine, um, um, uh, by declaring this to be a holy occasion. And I'm going to read you uh, what we say in Hebrew. I, the father will stand and hold a cup, and he says this. I'll do it in English. There was evening, there was morning. A sixth day, the heavens and the earth were finished, the whole host of heaven. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work, 
which God created and did. So here we're honoring God for, for being the God of creation. We honor Shabbat as a sign of God's creative work. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Then we say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments, has been pleased with us. You have willingly and lovingly given us your holy Shabbat as an inheritance in remembrance of creation. The Shabbat is the first among our holy days. If you read Leviticus chapter 23, the first holy day mentioned is Shabbat. The Shabbat, uh, uh, and, uh, and it's a remembrance of our exodus from Egypt, because we're not slaves anymore. We have a Shabbat. So we're honoring God at the table for giving us Shabbat. It's all about honor. It's all about learning to say thanks. Here, much kavod is distributed on God who sanctifies us with his commandments, on ourselves as being set apart for his service through these commandments. On Shabbat is the first of the days mentioned in the Bible that is holy. In remembrance, not only of creation, but also of deliverance from Egypt. This is because Shabbat reminds us that we're not slaves anymore. In all these prayers, God is honored, loved, adored, thanked. And other things are treated as special too. Shabbat, the mother, the father, the children. All of this to the honor of God. Step six, we have a ritual hand washing. Why? Because whenever the priests in the temple would offer a sacrifice, they would first wash. And since our home is a mikdash ma'at, you have to have a sacrifice in a temple. And what, and what is a sacrifice? The meal, in a way, is a sacrifice. And so before we bless the bread with which the meal is, uh, is begun... The father washes his hands as a way of, it's, it's a way of reminding oneself, what I'm about to do is special. It's an elevation ritual. It, remi- it alerts you to the fact, this is not just a piece of bread. This is a sacrifice to God. So we, we salt the bread. We put salt in the bread because all the sacrifices in the temple were seasoned with salt. So we salt the bread. We wash our hands. Then we go back and we salt the bread. We eat the bread, and then we eat. Now, we Jews know how to eat. And uh, uh, we, we, uh, we eat a very good meal. At my house, it's always a good meal. During the meal, we'll sing songs, all kinds of songs of praise to God. It's a family gathering, really in honor of God, and it's great. The songs, hundreds of years of traditions of songs that are all sung to give thanks to God for Shabbat, to give thanks to God for everything we have, for all of his blessings to us. It's all elevating kavod, all these rituals. Um, you never forget the songs. Step number 11 is there's a holy teaching, uh, uh, a teaching from, from Torah, from, from Scripture in some way. Then at the end of the meal, there's a, uh, called the Birkat Amazon, which is a, uh, an after-meal blessing. It says in Deuteronomy, after you have eaten and been satisfied, you shall bless the Lord. Uh, after you've eaten and are satisfied. That's what we do. We, we're more scriptural than Baptists. Uh, that's, I'm teasing. Uh, that, by the way, is in Deuteronomy 8.10. The blessings are called Birkat uh, the blessing of the meal. They provide a marvelous sketch of Jewish thought, imagination, remembrance, and hope. So let me give it give you a little bit of it. First we sing uh, Psalm 126, especially in the hope that the Jews will return to Zion. 
Then we uh, basically, we do four blessings, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing because that would take probably 40 minutes or half an hour. But we, we thank God for the food. We thank God for the land of Israel. We thank God for Jerusalem. We thank God for His goodness. After these four blessings, we sing other blessings. We talk about the, we talk about the Messiah, we, about the coming of the Messiah. There are all kinds of blessings. We, we, we bless the, the uh, and you can insert other, they're called Harachaman blessings. Harachaman. I just said, the merciful one, he will bless our, our, our brethren, the people of Israel. And you do all these blessings and everybody says, Amen, Amen. So we're just ticking off the things that we have to be grateful for, the things that, that, uh, that we want God to bless, that we thank God for his blessing. This is real theological formation every week. Then Saturday night, when Shabbat is over, we have another ritual called Havdalah. You're one of the few Baptist churches in the world where when I say Havdalah, you know what I'm talking about. We began Shabbat with lighting the candles, and a ceremony called Kedush, and now we have to mark the end of the, uh, of, of the day. And uh, let me give you some of the words that we say. We use... Uh, A, many, a, a multiple wick candle, we use a cup of wine, and we use a little vessel of spices. The multiple wicks of the candle remind us of the, of the lights of creation. When God created the heavens and the earth, he made the, the, the great lights, the lesser light to rule the day, the, uh, the greater light, the lesser light to rule the night, and the greater light to rule the day. So since we're ending Shabbat and we're going to the first day of the week, we're reminding ourselves of God's work of creation with this candle. We also sniff the incense as a symbol of the sweetness of Shabbat, which we're saying goodbye to for another week. And, uh, and the wine, of course, is a matter of joy. So, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, etc., etc. Uh, for the Lord my God is my strength and my song, and from joy I will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Then we... Uh, we uh, then. We say, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who separates the holy from the mundane, light from darkness, Israel from the nations, the seventh day from the rest of the six days of work. Blessed are you who distinguishes the holy from the mundane. That is a profound theological lesson. That it is God who determines the boundaries of reality. So now I have a summary and conclusion for you. I'm going to give you a handout, and we're all going to do the summary together. And I'm going to prove to you that God answers prayer, because I'm going to be done. Uh, and uh, so, w would somebody help me hand these out? Thank you. Uh, there's a front and a back. The front has got the title at the top of it, Summary and Conclusion. And uh, we're going to do this. I'm going to ask... Uh, um, I'm going to ask Bruce, Pastor Bruce, to come up. You, you okay? I'm going to ask him to come up and and read and uh, read uh, read the front. And then Anya, I'm going to ask you to read the back. Okay? Thank you. And all of you, I'm going to ask to follow because 
This is probably the most important part of our, our little gathering today. So, Pastor Bruce, yes, why don't you read it? We'll all follow along. That's all right. Robert Wuthnow. Yeah. Robert Wuthnow is an American sociologist who is widely known for his work in the sociology of religion. He is the uh, Jared R. Endlinger Professor of Sociology at Princeton University, where he is also the chair of the Department of Sociology, the director of the Princeton University Center for the Study of Religion. Uh, All right. Listen uh, to these two brief quotations from his book, Growing Up Religious. Uh, What do you come away with from hearing these? I want you to listen very carefully to these quotes from this great book in which he interviewed Jews, Protestants, and Catholics to find out what was it that caused them to have an enduring spirituality. Effective religious socialization comes about through embedded practices, that is, through specific Deliberate religious activities that are family intertwined. Firmly. Firmly intertwined, that's right. With the daily habits of family routines, of eating and sleeping, of having conversations, of adorning the spaces in which people live, or celebrating the holidays or holy days, uh, being part of a community. Compared with these practices, the formal teachings of religious leaders pale in significance. Yet when such practices are present, Formal teachings also become more important. So where does he say spirituality uh, is shaped? It's shaped in the home through patterns of embedded practices. Second paragraph. And reinforced in the congregation. That's correct. Not begun in the congregation. Yeah, he says, he says, it doesn't happen through a catechesis, through being being, uh, uh, instructed. Although, because of these experiences in the home, it creates space for questions right. that will be asked, but it's the home that is foundational. Go ahead, please. It is evident, however, that religion, like charity, begins at home. The daily round of family activities must somehow be brought into the presence of God. Parents praying, families eating together, families focusing on what is proper and improper, and sacred artifacts are all important ways in which family space is sacralized. They come together, forming an almost imperceptible mirage of experience. Keep going, please. Okay. We have learned today that the home is the holy of holies of Jewish life and also of the life of Yeshua believers from among the nations that is us. We have learned that the home is a little sanctuary where the presence of God is to be sought, honored, and cultivated, and yes, experienced. God is to be worshipped there and also experienced there. We have learned that ritual is an important means of sensitizing us how and why to honor him, to give him the kavod, the honor and respect he is due. We have learned that our faith teaches us that all of life involves learning to distribute appropriate kavod, to give honor to whom honor is due, for husbands to love their wives, for wives to see that they respect their husbands, for children to honor their parents, for parents to honor their children, Uh, for as the prophet Malachi reminds us, the Elijah prophet, and by implication the Messiah come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. We have learned as well that we must not become ingrown, that the home is meant to be a place 
from which we go out and to which we come in. That we are to live in the outside world, the transformation and holiness we cultivate in the home. With that in mind, I'm going to share with you some final truths almost universally missed and of pivotal importance. And here they are. Okay, Anya, please. Thank you. Thankful that we have a community where we share things, experience, and opportunity. Number one, Jesus did not send his disciples out to plant churches. There is not a verse in the New Testament that advocates church planting. He sent them out to make disciples. Think about that. Go ahead. Number two, and for the first 300 years of the church, all of this disciple-making was centered in the home. There were no churches as we understand them, and there was no need for them. What was needed was a home base for disciple-making, and disciples were made at home. Number three, Jesus had 12 disciples whom he named apostles. And for what reason did he send them out? Did he say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and plant churches? No. Was it to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to know whatsoever I have commanded you? No again. Was it to to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to believe whatsoever I commanded you. Again, no. But can any of us doubt that the default assumption of church life is that we are to go forth and plant churches? And isn't the assumption that churches exist to teach people what to know and what to believe? Of course, those are the assumptions. That was not the thrust of Jesus' teaching. While to be sure Jesus wanted his disciples to teach people something to know, and he wanted them to believe what they knew, the thrust of the New Testament community was absolutely this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures, teaching them to do whatever I have commanded you. Disciples are trained to do And with all our doing, we are supposed to make more kingdom doers. That is, we who are disciples are called to make disciples of others. That is the job assignment for all of us from day one. The Disciple Center is a good place to catalyze this process. A great resource, but do not be confused. The center is meant to train you for obeying and honoring God in your Mikdash Ma'at. Mikdash Ma'at. Your little sanctuary. Your household. It is there at home that you are meant to encounter, experience, learn of, and honor God, and to invite others into the life we share together. We are not in the church business, we are in the family business. That family is the family of God, and that family should be gathering and expanding into, in your home 
not simply through physical childbirth, but through spiritual childbirth. This is critical for the kingdom of God here in the diaspora, waiting for the kingdom to come. Yeshua told us, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. We are awaiting that time when we will see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Praise God. And we will hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among men. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. But until then, we live among these first things. And for us, first among these first things is that God has an address. It is at our house where we will learn to show him, each other, and the rest of life proper kavod, and where we invite others to our table to be born anew into the family of God, that they too might grow up to honor him as his children. Baruch Hashem. Thank you very much. I got a mandate from your pastor to, you know, I see that he gives addresses. He doesn't give sermonettes, you know. A friend of mine used to say, sermonettes create Christianettes. Uh, And uh, so it's not every group that I would be able to be so thorough with, but you're you're well-trained to think. So uh, thank you for letting me be, uh, to pour out my heart to you. Uh, do you have any questions? <laughs>